0: Well, in our study through the book of John, we arrive at chapter 5. In this particular chapter, we're going to see a few very significant things happen. And perhaps most notably is that by the time that we get to the end of this chapter, the hostility towards Jesus from the people in his day is really going to heat up. By the end of this chapter, we're going to see a plot develop... To take Jesus' life. Up until this point, uh, at worst, some of Jesus' teaching and works may have caused confusion. He's preached on the temple. Tear this down, I'll rebuild it in three days. Temple? What are you talking about? This took 46 years to build. Jesus preaches and and he talks about being born again. Born again? How does that even work? He's going to have confusion perhaps, but now we're going to see a white-knuckled, furious grip from these Jews. We're about to uncover that will lead them to literally plan murder for Christ. We're going to see that these Jews will conclude they are holier than, they are more righteous than, more sinless than, more trustworthy than Jesus himself. That's what's going to happen. The dividing line will be drawn. They will see themselves as righteous and holy and Jesus as an enemy of God. That's what will happen before we get to the end of this chapter. And those tensions will not subside until his death, his burial, his resurrection. And in many ways, they have not yet subsided even to our very own day. Today's passage will also carry with it a weighty warning against legalism in the hearts of people. This is on chief display in this particular passage. It's why I think it's in the Bible And so my prayer this morning is that I'm going to go ahead and start reading through verses 1 through 17. We're going to cover most of that today, not all of it. Uh, We're going to have to back up a little and see some more of those verses again by next week. My hope will be to read through, explain through, and then draw out some application for you, both in warning and in encouragement. So let's go ahead and read through John 5, 1 through 17. You can follow along with me, uh, and then I'll pray. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, a pool, an Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there for a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him, and this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. Let's pray. Father, I am well aware this morning that my efforts in preparing for this sermon and preaching it will be in vain if you do not work in the hearts of these hearers today. And so, Father, I ask for you to do that. Lord, the warnings and the encouragements needed to be drawn from this passage would not land with the force needed apart from your Spirit's work. And so please do that, Lord. Let us be greatly warned and greatly encouraged. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's go back through, starting at the first verse there of chapter 5. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, so this was a feast, once again, as we see a bunch of them in the book of John. Again, this is a feast that takes place in Jerusalem. Jesus goes back to Galilee, to Jerusalem, Galilee, to Jerusalem. We see that a bunch in his ministry. That's where all the national feasts were held. It's their center of corporate worship. We don't know what particular feast this was, and evidently, John didn't seem it was important to think it was important for us to have that knowledge, and the Holy Spirit didn't either, and so we're left wondering exactly what feast. Nevertheless we see a very interesting scene. Verses 2 and 3 say, Now there is in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, a pool, in Aramaic, called Bethesda, which has five-roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. Now this particular pool was actually unearthed by archaeologists in the mid-20th century. If you were to travel to Jerusalem today, you could see the remains of this exact pool. If you had a chance to be there and see it, it's an incredible sight to see. You can see even some of the roofed colonnades or what remains of them uh, to this very day. It's really awesome. It's quite a bit below ground level now, but you can go see this. It confirms for us once again, these are historical events that took place in reality. The pool itself was not much bigger than what we see in this room, the square footage of this room. And there were people who lay, a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed, and they all surrounded this particular pool. The question we might ask is why? Why is it that these people would be surrounding there? And if you were to look at verse 4, you'll see the answer. So look at your Bible and locate verse 4. Here's me pausing for effect. Because probably none of your Bibles have verse 4 in there. It sells verse 2, verse 3, and then verse 5. Why is that? First, let me read for you what my footnote here has for verse 4. It goes like this Wait, the people, the blind, lame, uh, the invalids, were waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. That's what verse 4 would say. That's the way we have it on record in English here. And it's not in the flow of most of your Bibles, I suspect. It might be in italics or in a footnote below, but that's the best we've got. Why? Well, because the Bible has been put together by a whole litany of manuscript traditions, that is, copies of the New and Old Testaments that we can use to piece together the original account. And the earliest manuscripts do not include this particular verse. So as the English Bible came along, uh, people did see that manuscript evidence later, they added it in there as a bit of a commentary, and here in our modern Bibles, they put it as a footnote, just to make sure that people know, I don't think this was inspired But clearly, later traditions added it in order for us to understand the particular superstition and tradition that had developed. So some allow verses like this to be an undermining. Some people look at this and go, aha, see, this missing verse is proof that translators are trying to trick us. No, it's exactly the opposite. The simple fact that whenever there are question marks about what verse should or should not be included we have them included with footnotes to warn. Hey, this may or may not have actually been inspired. This just made it into later Bibles when people were writing their notes. So the hearer, the reader can judge. But it does seem that this was not, in fact, inspired by God. Whether or not this particular uh, footnote was inspired by the Holy Spirit, it does seem very likely that there was, in fact, a standing tradition that had developed over time For people to gather around this pool in Bethesda. Some of your Bibles might say Bethsaida, depending on your spellings there. They believed that the angel of the Lord would stir up the waters, and the first one to get in the water upon the stirring would be healed of a disease. That's what the people thought. And that's the setting for the story we're about to read. So I want you to picture it with me. A good-sized pool, maybe like this one, the size of this room. People all lined up. And what do you think they're doing? If there are anybody who actually cares to be healed, there's no way they're sitting in lawn chairs 10 feet away. They're right up on the edge. This is like my kids waiting at the rim of our pool for the lifeguards to blow the whistle to say, 15 minutes is up, you can get back in. They're waiting for the firing pistol to shoot that they can dive in the pool. That's what people are ready to do. And their eyes are fixed on the water. No one knows exactly the stirring, but perhaps there was a, it was a, a spring-fed uh, pool, so maybe bubbles would come up and someone would think, ah, angel, and dive in with the assumption that they could be healed. I want you to zoom in with me now. That's the scene in Jerusalem during a feast day. On this particular feast, the tradition was, ah, God will come down. Somebody today gets healed. And whoever's the first in wins. Verse 5 zooms the story in to a single man. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. So this great crowd of people, and we have to imagine there could be hundreds of people there. Even if people thought it was superstitious, it's still a fun event to observe. And so people came around to watch everyone crowd the water. And some certainly took it very seriously. This lame man, he was unable to walk and had been unable to walk for 38 years, was there. 38 years. Just to not miss anything here, many commentators have noted something about that 38 years, because we see rich symbolism, especially throughout the life of of Jesus and in the gospel accounts. 38 years is precisely the number of years that the Israelites wandered in the desert. 38 years. You may be going, wasn't that 40 40 years was the total number of years they were in the desert. But the first two, they were receiving the law of God, they were uh, fighting off some enemies, they were traveling, they were building the tabernacle, establishing a society. It wasn't until the second year that they made it to the promised land and were turned back at the Jordan River to spend the rest of the 40 years. 38 more wandering before they'd enter the promised land. So think about that. 38 years of aimless wandering prior to a promised salvation. And so many have seen rich symbolism. And this man, a representative of Israel, in a aimless wandering until salvation comes 38 years later. 38 years he had not been able to walk. Verse 6 says, When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? Picture with me again, whole crowd of people. This guy is probably not on the front line. Jesus sees him. Jesus is probably on the outskirts of the crowd. This guy's sitting down on a the mat there, and he's pretty whiny about what's going down, as we're going to see. And Jesus approaches him. He doesn't wait to be approached. This man has no idea who Jesus is. He won't even know until much later. He doesn't know his name. Doesn't know who. He's, He couldn't pick him out of a crowd again. Man's sitting there on his mat. Jesus initiates a conversation, just as with the woman at the well. Unsolicited, he steps forward. And Jesus asks what must have seemed to this man the most obvious question. Do you want to be healed? Jesus chose that man out of the entirety of the crowd. Why? I don't know if we'll ever know. But he went to this man, asked the question, and here's the response. The sick man answered him, Sir, and I think it's whiny, so I'll do the whiny voice, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. What's he saying? That's my salvation. That's my hope. My hope is getting in the water. Do I want to be healed? Of course I want to be healed. I just need to get in the water. That's my greatest hope. We're in chapter 5. You guys remember chapter 4, where Jesus speaks to the woman at the well, and what's the first thing he says in that unsolicited conversation? If you knew who I was, who it was you were talking to, you would have asked me and I would have given you the water of life. Here this crowd of people is staring at the water, looking for salvation when the real water of life is right behind them, approaching an invalid on the steps. Everybody's fixated on the wrong thing. And so is this man. Just like the woman at the well, just like Nicodemus, just like the Pharisees back in Jerusalem earlier with the temple misunderstanding, this guy has no idea who he's talking to, has no idea that Jesus is actually meaning, do you want to be healed? If he answers yes, boom, we're done. Now this man doesn't understand. He goes, well, if you're asking if I want to get in the water, I assume, yes, and his particular infirmity made it such that it was even harder for him to get into the water. This man was relying upon his work or anyone else in the world. I don't even have a friend. I don't have a friend in the world who would actually be here for me on the chance that I might be able to get in the water when it stirred up and then be healed. I don't even have a friend who'd be here for me on this one special feast day to make sure that that could happen. And Jesus hones in on him. Jesus says to him, what's the next thing he says? This is awesome. Jesus said to him, get up. Take up your bed and walk. The man literally just said, I can't get into water without help. I I, I can't do it. Unless somebody helps me, I won't even be able to roll myself into that pool. And Jesus just says, get up. This man clearly doesn't know who he's talking to. And Jesus gives an impossible command. Insurmountable, unattainable. This would be like, stop being sick. Jesus does this all the time. I've heard this kind of ism in Christianity where people say about Jesus, well, God would never command us to do something we couldn't do. That's not, that's totally false. He tells us to do things we can't do all the time. Jesus says, be perfect. Matthew 5, 45. He'll later say to this man, stop sinning. One of my favorite uh, stories of the, uh, the feeding of the 5,000 and one of those little moments that we kind of quickly forget about, but Jesus turns to his disciples when they report to him, hey, everyone's hungry. We need to give them food. They're all going to like faint out here in the, in, the, in, the, in the wilderness with us if they don't get some food. And Jesus turns to his disciples. Do you remember what he says? I, th- I think it was to Nathaniel. He says, uh, you feed them. Uh. Awesome, all the time. He gives impossible commands that could not possibly be followed unless unless God supernaturally gives the power to obey. God still does this for us today. I don't think this is the point of this text, but I can't not draw up on this a little bit here. God may tell you to forgive someone, to love someone, to overcome a particular sin in your life, and you know you do not have the power in yourself to do it. I tried. I don't have it in me. I, I can't. It's not possible for me to do what you're commanding me to do. Of course it's not. But well, If you're a believer, he gives you the Holy Spirit to equip you, to empower you, to enable you to do what would be impossible for you to do by yourself. Here Jesus speaks to this man and he says, get up, take up your bed and walk. And again, I'm just picturing it. Can you imagine just saying that to somebody on the street today? What do you think they would go? Okay, I'll try. It's hard to imagine. The authority with which he must have spoke, irresistibly, the man responds to the call. I don't think there's any way around it. Irresistibly, just okay, boom, stands up. He can't not obey Jesus. The very God who spoke the earth into existence, light, birds, trees, humankind, he speaks to this man and just as effectually causes him to stand to his feet. You know, have you ever seen, have you ever seen uh, like videos of uh, maybe a, a wounded soldier or something and comes back from the battlefield and, uh, you know, he has to go through a whole bunch of physical therapy to slowly learn to walk again. And he's on those little parallel bars and kind of just muscling his way through to kind of build those muscles all over again so he can walk again after a, after a, a harmful incident. Jesus' miracles are always better. Instantaneous. The guy doesn't get up and stumble. I haven't walked in 40 years. I don't know how to do this. Gets up, picks up a mat, and starts walking. It's just unfathomable. It's the real thing. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. But that verse finishes with another sentence, and it's this sentence... That I believe is like a dark storm cloud forming on the horizon. I think that this sentence clues us into and introduces why this particular story is recorded. Jesus healed many people, probably thousands of people, easily hundreds we've never even read about in the Bible. John says that later at the end of this book. Listen, there's so many more miracles that I couldn't have written about. I didn't have enough ink, didn't have enough paper to finish writing about all those miracles. Why would this one have been selected to aid in our belief of Jesus? Why this one? I think this is why. Now, that day was the Sabbath. Here's why that's so significant. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is a Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to take up your bed. Now, quick pause here. The term for Jews here, it does just mean Jews, but John uses it 71 times, and every time John uses it, he's using it to refer to the rulers of the Jews, Sanhedrin, Pharisees, some religious leader role. That, that's the way John uses it. So he's not just saying the crowd generally. He's saying some level of leadership, credibility, So it's a particular interaction with the Jewish leaders. And the Jews said to the man who'd been healed, it is the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to take up your bed. Now let's begin by giving some benefit of the doubt. Let's, at this point of the story, just forget what's going to come next for a second, and imagine the scene. We've got some uh, Jews, religious leaders, standing there on the street, maybe in the marketplace, and they see a guy just start... You know, big smile on his face, uh, rolled up yoga mat under his arm, walking his way home. Now, these Jews, crowd, hey, oh, hey, buddy, uh, just didn't know if you knew this. Um, it's Saturday. So, no carrying stuff. Maybe they had no idea what was going down. They just are, hey, a little helpful, uh, you know, public service announcement for you, buddy. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. Now all of them, I think, not just the, Jew- the Jews, uh, these rulers, uh, not just the man, I think everybody who could be around know this, that the fourth commandment specified a rest on the Sabbath day. That would have been Saturday, the seventh day of the week. Exodus 20, verses 8 through 10, tell us, uh, the, this tells us a bit about that Sabbath law, it's one of the Ten Commandments. Fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall do, you shall not do any work. And that, in that same passage, it'll go on to explain, and that goes for everybody. Sojourners, uh, masters, uh, children, women, men, everybody. Even your animals have to, have to take a break on the Sabbath day. That's, everybody has to follow that. And carrying stuff was considered a Sabbath-breaking work. Jeremiah 17, 21 says, Thus says the Lord, Take care for the sake of your lives, and do not bear a burden on the Sabbath day, or bring it in by the gates of Jerusalem. So, there was at least a basis for these Jews to challenge that question. Hey, just so you know, it's kind of one of our laws. And what's the response? The man who healed me, he said it's Okay. In saying this, this man lets on two very important pieces of information. Number one, he has been healed. Number two, the healer authorized me carrying this mat. They asked him, who's the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now, there's no way around this, especially because where we're going to see this goes. This goes to a plot to kill Jesus. That's where it ends. A successful plot to kill Jesus. Who's the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? This is not sincerity of the heart. Oh, that's wonderful news. Oh, go tell us, then we'll tell all those people standing around the pool, stop looking at the water, look at that guy. There is no goodness in their heart. This is a twisted and sick response. Make no mistake about it. If we've needed evidence of hardened and corrupted hearts in these men, here it is. Instead of being mind blown, you were, wait, 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 you were healed? Wait, I recognize you. You're that guy who used to be down there, and now you're up here. That's, you were healed. Praise God, brother. Rejoice with those who rejoice. They just witnessed a miracle. A man of God must be amongst us. No. They don't even care that this man was healed. They don't care his decades-long suffering has ended. They don't even seem to care how. Wait, 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 wait. How? They are fixated on the thing under his arm. All they care about is judgment for the one who told this man to walk. I want you to consider. Consider this for a moment. Nothing Jesus ever does is an accident. Jesus never engages in random acts of kindness. Oh, sorry, I didn't realize it was the Sabbath. I should have stopped. Never. Everything Jesus does is with perfect and absolute intent. That means that this interaction with these Pharisees, these ruling Jews, was not an accident. Jesus provoked this exact interaction. He could have just said, Hey, get up, leave that filthy mat behind you. You're never going to need it again. He goes, get up. Hey, wait, 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 wait! before you go, Um, why don't you take that mat with you? Guys, there's no way around this. There's no way around. Jesus has absolute and certain knowledge of what's about to happen because this man is carrying a mat. You can walk. You can walk. You can skip and prance your way home if you want on a Sabbath, but carrying a mat, Jesus knows exactly what's about to happen. And he provokes it anyway. He stirs it up. He arouses in these hypocrites their judgmental reaction for the record, for us, and exposes the true condition of their hearts. Now at this point, it is clear that they are infected with a spirit of legalism. Repeatedly throughout the Gospels, Jesus' miracle working on the Sabbath exposes the true nature of these Pharisees' hearts. He continually tells them it is not sinful to do good on the Sabbath. That's not what Jesus is doing. Hey, it's okay if I sin on the Sabbath because I'm Jesus. He doesn't say that. It's not okay for him to sin. He's saying it is not a sin to do good on the Sabbath. He continually tells these guys, What are you talking about? You may do good on the Sabbath. If your animal falls into a pit, you can go get it on the Sabbath and have peace with God. If you're a soldier, you may work on the Sabbath and have peace with God. If you're a priest doing work on the Sabbath, you can have peace with God. Stop it. You can do those good things. Necessary labors are, of course, permitted. But that's why this was so easy for Jesus to stir it up. Because it had been an area... Where people could observe particular works and activities of others with heightened scrutiny. And they don't seem to care so often about Jesus' explanation of why it's okay to work on the Sabbath in these instances. They care more about the letter of the law than about the person. More importantly, they love the law more than the lawgiver. I wanna talk about and from this passage warn you of a spirit of legalism. But in so doing, I want to start with this disclaimer. Legalism ought not be confused with loving righteousness. It is good and godly and essential for us to love holiness, righteousness. Additionally, legalism ought not be confused with hating sin and wickedness. We ought to hate sin and wickedness. But legalism is when a love for righteous behavior is greater than one's love for God and others. Legalism is what inevitably happens when you take respect for godly law and order and add pride. Because pride is a universal vice, legalism is not unique to Christianity or Judaism here. Legalism can be found in any system of religious zealotry. There are Muslim legalists, there are Mormon legalists, there are Catholic legalists, Eastern Orthodox legalists. There are even atheist legalists. In fact, you and I live in a day of a growing adherence to woke legalism. We see it every day. It's the essence of cancel culture. No matter how a person votes, no matter what their ideology, there's always a risk of being canceled if you don't toe the party line. If you say just the wrong thing, you step out of line, you can quickly go from friend to enemy of your party. We watch this everywhere we go. There is a high-level legalism amongst all different peoples in our day. Anyone can be a legalistic about something. Anyone can be. But Christians, above all others, have no excuse. Our God is a humble God. The Bible says in Philippians 2, 5 through 8, it first tells us that we should be a kind of people that look not only to our own interest but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Everyone becomes like their God. And our God is a humble God. This doesn't even make sense to people of this world who have not embraced Jesus Christ. We are to become sanctified, further becoming more and more like him, thinking less of ourselves and more of others and acting In accordance with that, legalism is like a cancer to our faith. Few things can more rapidly and more destructively ravage Christian relationships than a spirit of legalism. I want to give a few identifiers of, kind of, points of definition of legalism, and some warnings about it. Legalism focuses on the outside rather than the inside. So it cares more about the law than the heart, more about works, not faith. So these guys observing this man walking, their highest concern was what they saw. We're watching what's happening, we're seeing what's taking place. We're not going to give benefit of the doubt. We're not going to assume the best in this. How dare somebody do the thing? We don't think that they ought to do. Legalism becomes hyper focused on what can be observed. That's exactly what these Jews do. These guys loved to be loved by other people, they wanted everyone to see what they did on the outside. You notice we're not carrying a mat, you are. You notice that? You could be more like us if you just stop doing what you're doing right now. They have no idea where that guy's headed. And these Pharisees, Sanhedrin, ruling Jews, they had devised all sorts of clever tricks, the Bible tells us, to get people to think better of them. They give, not out of the goodness of their heart, but to be seen. Hey, everybody notice, I have a big gift. I just would want to put it in this box for the poor. Just wanted to set it here. Sorry to interrupt you. They pray to be seen. Loud in public, making sure everyone can hear their prayers. They love sitting in the best seats. Oh, don't mind if I do. They love being referred to by special names of honor. Even when they're in a moment of devotion to the Lord, presumably, and a moment of fasting. I'm so sorry, I'm so weakened today by my holy moment of fasting. And Jesus mocks them publicly for it. In Matthew 6, he tells us, do not be like the hypocrites when giving to charity, when praying, when fasting. They do all these things not because they have genuine love for God, but because they want to be seen as righteous by other people. They care about the outside, what it looks like. They don't care if God actually answers their prayer. They don't care if their fasting produces anything before them and their Lord spiritually. They don't even care that the person who needs the charity receives it. They want to get external benefit from it. The outside, the observable, does not always accurately represent the heart. We are not the greatest judges of character. God alone really can do that well. The Bible repeatedly warns us about looking on the outside. Because our faculties to judge rightly are compromised. You're going to have to make judgments, but be very careful, very cautious, very slow. Because what we see on the outside does not always show us what's on the inside. And it all too often provokes self-righteousness. That's exactly what we see in these Jews. In other words, they're not like, brother, we see you with the mat. We too have sinned against God, carrying our mats, sometimes literally. We too are undeserving of his goodness and his grace. We too have learned how it's important to not carry a mat on the Sabbath. That's not what these guys do. They're hypocrites. Jesus says in Matthew 15, Seven through nine, you hypocrites. Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, outward, external, but their heart is far from me, internal. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. All these externalities, it's not hard to check boxes. It's not hard to invent your own boxes. And that's what he says there teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. When you're not seen as good enough and following all the doctrines God has given you, give yourself a bunch more, and then you can check all those boxes. Assign a whole bunch more rules that you then follow and show everybody how godly you are. If there aren't enough to be seen publicly, make up some more. And that's exactly what these guys do. They even get in Jesus' face, his disciples' face, about them not washing their hands before they eat. How come you do not honor our tradition? What does your tradition have to do with anything? And one time, I remember as a younger pastor, I was uh, preparing at our church to go plant a new campus. And uh, we were hoping to kind of reach a new area that was a big growing area, um, a handful of miles away from the main campus. And as I was getting ready to do that, I remember a woman at our church walked up to me in the middle of the week at some point, and she said, hey, so you're, you're planting that campus? Um, well, I've got a son, an adult son, who uh, has walked away from the Lord. And I I believe that he really needs to come back to church. He really needs Jesus. And I really, he lives right next to where you're going to plant that campus. And I really want him to go to church, but I'm having a hard time. I don't think that I can, in good conscience, tell him to go to that church. I said, oh, why? And she goes, well, because you wear jeans and no tie. Oh, how easy it is. To build a box, no verse, no Bible, build a box so we can check it. And we're so easily drawn into these errors. It is far easier, listen, consider this, it is far easier to put on a tie than it is to prepare and preach sermons proclaiming truth uncompromising. Far easier to put a tie on. But we're so prone to this. And because legalism focuses on outward and observable behaviors, that's the focus, that's the emphasis, legalism invariably stirs up judgment for others. Well, where's your tie? Legalism heightens our scrutiny. It turns everyone into a proverbial hall monitor, witch hunter. Well, there's one over there. Who's there. Are they doing right? What? Is everybody sinning here? Is everybody obeying here? What? I think that person, that's what happens. And the, the enemy loves it. It's his playground. He loves to exploit that kind of scrutiny in our hearts, that we would watch out for any minor infraction that we may have seen in another, that we can turn our neighbor into the Gestapo, like it's some George Orwell novel. And this happens amongst believers sometimes. In fact, this is exactly what we see. We see the spirit in the Pharisees. We see the spirit in the Jews. This kind of scrutiny will turn them into judge, jury, and executioner. They don't merely go, well, he shouldn't be doing that. I'll leave it in the hands of God. Is that where they stop? Do the Jews go, if this Jesus really is against God, God, you deal with it. No, they want blood. They want their pound of flesh. They cannot be okay that he might be out there getting away with something. They think that they are a judge. These Pharisees brought this in and taught this to the people, and they had so much influence over those around them, the credibility of the people around them, that they were able to sway crowds to go from Hosanna, Hosanna, to a few days later, crucify. It's not hard to stir that up in hearts. Legalism lacks grace and mercy. You know, at the heart of the Christian faith is grace and mercy, that we are an undeserving people In spite of everything that we've ever done, God unconditionally loves and rescues believers. He rescues his people from our sin. If you're not a believer today, this is it for us. We're not looking for externalities being changed. We fully believe that any of that that has to happen starts in the spirit of God inside of a person and then grows out from there. Yes, we would love to see the fruit of sanctification in you, but what we want is for you to acknowledge that you are a sinner. Turn in faith to Christ who died on a cross that your sins may have been dealt with there. And just as he died and then was raised to new life, by faith alone, you too can be raised to new life. That's what we want. We don't just want a whole bunch of people whose behaviors have all been dialed in on. Anyone could do that with enough discipline. You want the true fruit that comes from saving faith, a contrite heart, a broken spirit. If you're not a believer today, that's what we want for you, to repent of your sins, turn in faith to Jesus. That's what we want. And he'll work on your heart. He'll do things inside of you. He'll do more than ever could have been accomplished by mere externalities alone. Legalism never begets true humility. Never. Legalism never produces true humility. It doesn't happen. False humility, all the time. True humility, never. That's what we were saying about the Pharisees. Dear Lord, please help me. Anyone? Oh, no one's here. Never mind. No, always wants others to see and think well of. And you need to know, God hates legalism because he loves humility. When you compare yourself to others, what's the product of that? It's pride. When you compare yourself to God, that's humility. This is what it produces. God hates legalism. You should know this too. Satan loves legalism. He loves legalism. It's one of the easiest Heart conditions to exploit is legalism. Why? Because he's an accuser. That's what he does. He accuses. Revelation 12.10 calls him a great accuser who accuses the saints before God day and night. He's constantly wanting to go to God and say, but they're sinners. But they're sinners. But they're sinners. Look what they did. And how is that power robbed from him? By the blood of Jesus Christ. That's how. By an acknowledgement. Yes, I am a sinner. Yes, I do deserve accusation but all that has been taken in Jesus Christ that I may be forgiven, 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 forgiven. In fact, those who fall for the lies of legalism act like their father, Satan. In Matthew 23, Jesus is just excoriating these Pharisees and calling them hypocrites. Seven times on repeat, he calls them this. And he says, They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. He even goes on to say in that same passage that they are children of hell multiplying another generation of children of hell. In John 8, he calls them sons of Satan. You're like your father, the devil. That's what he calls these legalists. And yet in Jesus' days, in Jesus' day, it was these very guys who had the greatest social score. Others trusted them. They looked up to them. They followed them. They looked at Jesus and these guys and they said, we want those guys. So many of them. And their pride was puffed up to their own destruction. Here's the warning. Don't be like those Jews. Don't do it. Don't fall for it. It's in all of us. It's in every one of us. Don't fall for it. Christians are certainly susceptible to this. The world sometimes points its crooked finger at the church And says things in accusation against us. And oftentimes those are just false. That's not true, that's not true, that's not true. Sometimes they're right. Sometimes we go, yeah, maybe we've done that more than we should. In true humility, we must own it. And there have been times, there have been seasons, and all of us, in any season, we can be susceptible to this, that that charge could stick. Are you loving the law more than the lawgiver? Galatians chapter 3. This is a time when Paul is confronting a huge legalistic spirit in the church in Galatia, the churches of Galatia. It sounds like there's a whole region of people messing up over the same problem. Peter shows on up. He doesn't change the gospel in his preaching. He doesn't start believing false things. But Peter shows up, and all of a sudden he's like, well, I don't want to associate with the Gentiles if Jews are around here, so I'll I'll just eat with them. And Paul's like, that's damaging to the gospel. What are you doing? You're teaching people that they're supposed to take their faith, their their salvation that's on faith alone, and just add the work of becoming Jewish, circumcised. And then you can really have peace with God. Then you can really associate with the others. And Paul is furious about it. He comes out of this in this letter to the Galatians. He doesn't even start with the platitudes and the pleasantries. He goes right into what's the matter with you? What are you doing to the gospel? By the time he gets to chapter 3, oh, you foolish Galatians, he says, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? So what do we see? These are Christians. These are Christians. They have begun by the Spirit. God has done a work in them. And yet, they're falling for this error. I think it's the reason that book is in the Bible to warn us, to remind us of this, to help us identify, expose, and deal with any legalism that could ever get into our heart, that we're going to try to be perfected by the flesh. How can you identify this in your own heart and be warned? Whenever you find yourself wanting, to get, wanting God to give you more grace than you're willing to give others. I want forgiveness for me, judgment for them. Grace for me, justice for them. This is, so, this is so much in us because it's just, it serves the self. That's like gravity for us. It always goes back that way. We want what's best for self. We have to war against that by the power of the Spirit. If you ever find yourself wanting God to forgive you and refusing to offer it to somebody else, whoa, major problem. How many times ought you to forgive? 70 times 7. Ongoing, 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 ongoing. ongoing. That's our Spirit all the time. In fact, Proverbs 19.11 comes to mind uh, that good sense makes one slow to anger and it is his glory to overlook an offense. Many places, both in the Proverbs and in the New Testament, tells us love covers over a multitude of sins. Just, let, just cover over, overlook an offense. I like Proverbs 19.11 um, because not only does it remind me of my favorite gun, but it also is a verse that reminds us that it's a man's glory to overlook an offense. It's a glorious thing. It is Christ-like for us to do it. Imagine what would have happened if these Jews, when they saw the guy walking by, oh, excuse You know what? I've sinned too. Maybe it's an offense. I'm just gonna overlook it. Can you imagine what's different? How much differently things could go if we were just willing to do that? Just overlook the offense. When you compare yourself with others, it is inevitable that the enemy will try to exploit and leverage that comparison in the direction of pride and legalism it's not hard to win those games it's not hard to win to, it's not hard to win when you make up your own rules when you make up your own scores all you have to do is just stay a little bit ahead of your fellow christian and then they're worse than you and you're good to go it's kind of like that joke uh, how do you outswim a shark you don't have to outswim a shark just outswim your friend who's next to you All you have to do is just be a little bit better than the guy next to you. Then he's the one worthy of judgment, not you. Don't compare yourself with others. Don't do it. Satan loves that kind of thinking. He is going to cause great harm there. There might not be a better way to destroy Christian relationships around you than to start comparing yourself with others. Now, here's the deal. There's a big, looming question that has to come when you talk about things like this well, then how do you ever confront sin in another person? If we're supposed to overlook offenses, if we're supposed to not make a big deal about other people's sin, see our sin as worse, hate our sin more than anybody else's sin, if that's the way we're supposed to think, then how are we ever to interact with one another regarding sin? Can we? What better book in the New Testament for Paul to deal with that than Galatians? Because the whole beginning is how, don't do this. Don't add works. Don't now think you can be justified, not just by the Spirit, not just by faith, but by all these other things you could add to it, namely circumcision. So what could happen at the end of Galatians 3? The people could go, uh, let's just never, ever talk about sin. Let's just never confront it. Because we don't want to... And Paul deals with it right then. How do you deal with it? The answer is, Very carefully. Galatians 6, 1 through, 3, 1 through 3, the final chapter of that book. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Let's look at three things. You who are spiritual. Paul compares that language with a weaker or younger brother in Christ. You're brand new believer? Probably not your game. Just wait. Probably not your job to go confront that issue you see in somebody else. Spiritual also is the same language that he uses of people in 2 Corinthians 3, where he says, Those that are causing division amongst you are not acting spiritual. If someone's causing division, they are not allowed to go around and try to confront other people's sin. You need to settle down first. Those who are spiritual, those who've proven wisdom, those who've who've demonstrated an ability to do what happens next, should be the ones to step in. Those of you who are spiritual should restore him. That's, that's, see that language, restoring, in a spirit of gentleness. Can you imagine what would happen if those Pharisees, even trying to confront the sin that they observed, the concern that they observed with this other guy, if they gave him benefit of the doubt, one of the cover over offenses, and just were gentle about it. Brother, oh, okay, some guy told you? Oh, you're healed? oh so great. Okay, um, just be careful. Read God's word. Trust what it says. Try not to carry mats around on Sabbath anymore. No, they wanted to kill somebody. Quite literally, they wanted to kill somebody. And they did. Restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep, this is the next thing that's happened. Keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. Why would he say that? Because Paul knows that when one person goes to confront another in sin, how easy it is for our pride to come in. I is the holy and righteous one who would never do as you lowly believer. Please stop doing the sinful and wicked, unholy things and be more like me. Keep watch on yourself. You think your heart can handle that? Pause. Be careful. The enemy will tempt you in that position. And how do we know that's the way he's going? Because it's literally what he's going to say a verse and a half later. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So come underneath, help that brother with it. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. That's the temptation. That's the temptation he's warning against. Go restore your brother. Hey, Pharisees. Hey, Jews. You go talk to that Jewish brother over there. Keep guard on yourself. You're going to be tempted in this doing in doing this. And if you think you're something, you think you're so holy, you think you're so mighty... You're deceiving yourself. Confronting sin is a dangerous work. Be on guard. Don't ever think too highly of yourself. Brothers and sisters, we must be slow to judge. You must never be like these people warned against in the New Testament, and we're so susceptible to it. We must be quick to forgive. Hate your own sin more than anyone else's. Never forget God's immeasurable mercy and grace, and freely and overwhelmingly offer that grace to others. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the stories of Jesus' life. Thank you for the record being preserved for us. Teach us how to be like Jesus. Teach us how to not be like those that he is confronting. Please teach us to be gracious and forgiving and humble and loving you and loving others. Father, help us to see ourselves rightly, not too highly. Help us to be a church that wards these things off, that grows in humility, that grows in, in unity. Help conform us to the image of your son and do it with your word, we ask. In Jesus' good name we pray, amen.